Okay, hi, and Health Talk from Mars. It's out of this world. In this podcast here, we're going to be talking about labs and things you can do to determine how old your actual biological age is. Today, I want to talk about some of the nuances of laboratory testing. Now, this is something that could be useful to even physicians out there, but also to the average person who's interested in their health. So most physicians, when they do blood work and they report back to you like, everything looks, you know, within the normal limits, that's really only the tip of the iceberg because there are areas where you want to be not in the reference range, but you want to be better than the reference range. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that today uh, and give you some examples over here. So let's let's start with, you know, a basic panel that a physician would do, a GP would be a CMP comprehensive metabolic profile and then also your lipids. So those are the two things and along with a CBC. Those are the three items that would normally get tested for. But lab work can be expanded rather dramatically and can really give you some very valuable information. Let's let's just start talking about your lipids. So that's a basic test that most physicians do. And this is something that should be done every year. Once a year, get this checked out. So your lipids consist of a combination of cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, LDL particle number, and also straight triglycerides. So those items are in a basic panel for lipids. And most physicians, well, if your level is below 200, they don't really bat an eye on that. But there is definitely a difference between a 160 and a 190. So the Framingham studies have pointed this out. When your cholesterol levels start to approach down to 150, and that's excluding everything else, your level of cardiovascular disease goes down very significantly. So cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of everyone still. It beats even cancer at this particular point. So ideally, we want your cholesterol to be at between 150 and 170. So those are the basic numbers that we want to shoot for. So LDL cholesterol, that is the stuff that damages your blood vessels, often termed bad cholesterol. LDL cholesterol, the normal reference range a lot of times is less than 130, but we know The lower your LDL, the lower your cardiovascular disease risk. So my ideal level for LDL cholesterol is below 90. And a lot of companies that make statin drugs, for example, know that if you're below 70, that reduces your risk even more. So it's like, okay... So that means everyone should be taking a statin because most all people, their LDL cholesterol is above 70. But that's, you know, we don't want to be pushing medications and pharmaceuticals for this. We want to do this through diet, basically. So LDL, we want that to be below 90. HDL cholesterol is the stuff that you want as much as possible. Ideally, over the mark of 60 is where you want to be. 
Again, reference ranges for males can go down to 40, but really, as we get lower and lower, we get more and more problems. So HDL is something that's protective against cardiovascular disease. All right, triglycerides. Triglycerides, those are fats in your blood. So in our previous podcast, we talked about triglycerides being something that can affect your insulin receptors. So there's a condition called metabolic syndrome or syndrome X, where triglycerides are elevated and people have impaired glucose tolerance. Impaired glucose tolerance usually means prediabetes. Right now, JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, came out with an article stating that one half of the U.S. population now has prediabetes or outright diabetes. So when you do the math, this is 167 million people in the United States have this condition. So basically, it's an epidemic. So there's three items on your blood test that will be affected by whether you're fasting or not. One is triglycerides. But sometimes it's actually better to do a non-fasting specimen because it tells us how well you're able to regulate your triglycerides. Give you an example, a patient came in just yesterday and they were non-fasting. We reviewed their blood work and their triglycerides came out to 276. That's pretty high. Ideally, your triglycerides should be less than 100. So now you say, well, this patient wasn't fasting. However, when you do the math in this particular patient, they had some eggs and some coffee about four and a half hours earlier. If you have a good cardiovascular clearance, your triglycerides will come down after about two and a half, three hours back to fasting. So having a triglycerides of 276, that's pretty high. So keep that in mind when you go in for your blood work and your blood work review. And you can ask your physician about this. On the other test, a little bit more of a refinement is something called LDL particle number. So LDL particle number is something that's relatively newer in the last 10, 15 years. And what we know is that LDL cholesterol, there's different kinds of LDL. We labeled LDL, again, this is just very rudimentary information. LDL cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein, is a particular lipoprotein that can be broken down into different types of particles. So the LDL particle number, we now realize, is a really important number. And that's something that you can request from your physician. So we here at Tabor Hill Clinic, we use state-of-the-art lab testing, and that's something that I oftentimes will test people for if they have cardiovascular disease in their family history. Again, this is something really important to look at. Look at your family history, your parents and your grandparents on both sides, and take a look at their history. As we've talked about before, your age, what everyone's programmed to live to is between 110 and 115. If you die at age 100, you die of something. 
and it's possible to die of old age, but you got to do all the right things, and that takes some education and some work to do. So let me explain a little bit LDL particle number. LDL particle number is a subfraction of your LDL cholesterol. The more particles you have, the more damage is going to take place to your blood vessels. And again, this happens over a long period of time. So I like to use this analogy of a golf course. You have a putting green, and on the putting green, it's all nice and clean, and there's a chain-link fence and separating a bunch of kids. And these kids have tennis balls, golf balls, and marbles. And these kids are throwing these objects at the fence, some of them, the tennis balls, are going to just bounce back. They're not going to get through the, the, the fence, the wire fence. The golf ball, some of them will get through and then start to accumulate on the green. And that's something that's going to be kind of analogous to doing some damage to your blood vessels. And lastly, the marbles, those are the things that are going to get through readily through this wire fence, and they're going to accumulate in greater quantity on that putting green, and they're going to damage your blood vessels. So now the groundskeeper comes around every so often, and he sweeps those golf balls and those marbles off the putting green. And so you want to have a number of groundskeepers, and you want them to be very active. The groundskeepers, that's your LDL cholesterol. That's what sweeps away all those LDL particles. So if you measure your LDL particles and they're above 1,000, that's something that starts to be toxic to the blood vessels. So ideally, I like to see it below 1,000. When you start getting up to 1,500 or 2,000 or even 3,000, that's really high. That's going to cause damage to your blood vessels, and you're going to need a significant amount of HDL to balance that out. And we'll talk about in another episode what we want to do to get those particle numbers down. But that's, again, something that you can request from your physician. Now, one last lipoprotein is called lipoprotein A. Lipoprotein small a is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And that's something, again, you can request your physician to do. It doesn't take any extra specimen. They can do it right off the specimen that they draw. So LDL, there's different kinds of LDL cholesterol. There's one kind that's a more of a direct kind. And you want that level, again, to be as low as possible. But it's possible that your cholesterol, triglycerides, HDL, LDL all look good, but your LPA is elevated, in which case the treatment is going to be a little bit different. So keep that in mind when you're looking at those numbers. Some other things to look at and some other things to request is something called homocysteine. So homocysteine is was discovered by Kilmer McCulley, who wrote a book in 1997 called The Homocysteine Revolution. So homocysteine is actually an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's and even for osteoporosis. Kilmer McCulley was at Harvard back in the 60s and 70s doing research, and they fired him because they said he was wasting their money. Well, as it turns out, 
He really should win a Nobel Prize in medicine for his discovery about homocysteine. And there are some studies that actually show, well, maybe homocysteine doesn't really make much of a difference. But I think the vast majority of research still shows that it is a significant factor. Homocysteine is one that takes a little bit of an effort to request from your physician. I have a handout in my office that I give to my patients. And so your homocysteine levels ideally should be below eight. So as they start climbing into the double digits, 10, 11, 12, that's a little bit damaging to your vessels and increases your risk a little bit of um, dementia. And as you start getting up to 14 to 17 to 18, that's starting to get significantly more toxic. And over the period of years, that can damage your blood vessels and also damage various types of neurons in your brain. Dr. Perlmutter, he's a board-certified neurologist from Florida, and he's written a number of books about dementia and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, showing that homocysteine makes a significant difference. The reason why you haven't heard much about it, I believe, is somewhat political, and that is there's no drug to lower homocysteine. Homocysteine is lowered by three vitamins, vitamin B12, folic acid, and also vitamin B6. And as we talked in a prior prior episode, they need to be the methylated forms of these vitamins. So B12, methyl B12, and methyl tetrahydrofolate. So just a little nuance there on vitamins. Some other factors relating to not just cardiovascular disease, but also for cancer, are some inflammatory markers. One of CRP. CRP is C-reactive protein or peptide, is another factor that's involved in inflammation in your blood vessels and also inflammation in your brain. So you don't want a lot of CRP floating around in your bloodstream. Ideally, your CRP should be less than 1.0. When you get to 1 to 3, that's a little bit elevated. And as the numbers start climbing, 7, 8, 9, that's definitely a significant amount of inflammation. And over time, that's going to damage your blood vessels and also damage neurons in your brain. So just a little note, there are various factors that can elevate your CRP. If you break a bone, if you have marked inflammation in the body, the CRP can be elevated. Or if you have an infection, that could elevate your CRP. So you want to take that into consideration at the time that you have your blood drawn. And the reason why we like to do repeated lab work is we see a trend. So if I do a CRP and you came out at seven, but let's say you had an, a bike accident and you damaged your knee, maybe that caused your CRP to be elevated. So we look back a year later, and if the CRP is still elevated and you didn't have an accident, that tells me maybe you have chronically elevated CRP and that needs to be addressed and needs to be treated. And that's something, again, we're going to talk in the future about how to treat some of these items, what to do from a holistic standpoint. Okay, another extremely important test that should be done with regards to making this request of your physician is to measure tissue levels of iron. 
I've talked about this in the past regarding multivitamin supplements, and this is something that's near and dear to my heart, and that is the level of iron in your tissues. And the level of iron in your tissues is really important because iron is something that you can't live without. If you don't have enough iron, you're not going to be able to make your red blood cells, your hematocrit's going to go down, your hemoglobin's going to go down, and the mean cell volume, which is the size of your red cell, is going to go down, and you'll have what's called microcytic anemia. Microcytic hypochromic means they lack blood or lack color anemia. We want to know exactly how much iron is in your tissues, not just in your blood, because iron sometimes can get stored in your tissues. And so if iron gets stored in higher levels in your tissue, it can damage those tissues. It can damage your liver. It can cause fatty infiltration of your liver. It can cause damage to your heart, your blood vessels, your spleen, your pancreas, any of the organs. Elevated iron has been associated with increases in cardiovascular disease, cancer, inflammation, diabetes, Alzheimer's. You name the chronic condition, elevated level of iron can participate in that. So you want to absolutely know before you take an iron supplement if your tissue levels of iron are actually low. Again, most physicians, they don't ever check this. So ferritin is the compound that you want to measure. But a little note, ferritin is an acute phase reactant. Similar to CRP, if you break a bone, if you have viral or bacterial infection, or any kind of inflammation in the body, that could elevate your level of ferritin and give you a false reading on your tissue levels of iron. In order to get an accurate representation of your iron in your tissue, you absolutely want to check something called the percent transferrin saturation. So the percent transferrin saturation, again, you always want to do together with ferritin because it's going to tease out whether you have inflammation in your body and whether, in fact, your iron tissue level is, is elevated. And so the percent transfer and saturation, the normal percentage is approximately 20 to 50%. So ideally, you want to be closer to that 20%. As you start to get above 30, 35%, that means you have extra iron in your tissue. And here's the thing. From a genetic standpoint, one-eighth of the entire Earth human population carries one of the genes that codes for hemochromatosis. So hemochromatosis is a fancy way of saying you got too much iron in your tissue. The number of actual people that are homozygous carries both genes is relatively small, but if it happens to you, you're not going to live past age 30 because you will die of fulminant oxidation of your tissues, usually heart disease, stroke, heart attack, that kind of thing. So absolutely want to know if you're homozygous. And there's a genetic test that's a little bit beyond what we're going to talk about that can test for that. We know that one-eighth of the human population carries one of the genes. So those people oftentimes will tend to store extra iron in their tissue. It works great when food is scarce 
And you need to have enough iron because from a standpoint, evolutionary-wise, if your tissue iron is low and you become anemic, you're more susceptible to get eaten by some predatory animal and you're not as sharp and you're just not physically able to respond the same way. So absolutely want to know your tissue level of iron, measure ferritin and the percent transfer and saturation. There's another test that can tease out if those uh, figures are ambiguous, and that's called soluble transferrin receptors. We're not going to talk about that, but that's another test that you can differentiate. Okay, another test similar to CRP that I routinely test for is something called fibrinogen. Fibrinogen is a marker that tests for stickiness of your blood. So you want to know about fibrinogen because if your blood is really sticky, then what's going to happen, you're more susceptible to deep vein thrombosis, stroke, heart attack. So know your fibrinogen number. The reference range is between 200 and 400. Ideally, I like to see it above or below the midline, so below 300. When you get to 350, 380, that means your blood's going to be tending towards more stickiness, and we don't want that. We want your blood to be mellifluous, sweetly flowing in your blood vessels. An elevated level of fibrinogen can also be an indication that you may have a cancer brewing in your body. So not to scare anyone out there, but you want to know your fibrinogen level, and you want to have a physician that interprets it correctly and gives you the correct inflammation. If it is super elevated, you want to check it again in a couple of months to see if it was just temporarily elevated. So again, different infections, inflammation can elevate your fibrinogen levels. Okay, so that brings us now to the basic CBC. So CBC is a complete blood count, and that's very standard Almost every physician's going to check your CBC, and that's to check to see if you've got any abnormalities in your red blood cells or your white blood cells. So the white blood cell count's usually the first one that's listed. The reference range usually is somewhere between 4 and 11,000. And so when that level gets above 7,000, I start to think, hmm, there could be a problem in the body. There could be some small infection going on. But if you get really sick, frequently it's going to go up over 10,000. And it can go 20,000 or even higher than that. So take a look at your white blood cell count. A differential is usually done on a white cell count. That means they look to see what those white cells are. So there's ones that fight viral infections, and that would be your lymphocytes and bacterial infections. We look at neutrophils, and they fight bacterial infections. And then there's allergies, eosinophils, and basophils, but we're not going to get into details on that. So the other thing to look at is to see how thick your blood is. Again, this is a really important point. And the reason is you want your blood to be, as mentioned, mellifluous, which means sweetly flowing. And if your hematocrit, 
which is the percentage of your blood that's made out of red cells because your blood's basically cellular component and then the serum part. The serum is what contains all your enzymes, your liver enzymes, your kidney function, your minerals, cholesterol, all that stuff in there. So you want to know what percentage of your blood's made out of red cells. It's a little bit different for males than females. Females are a little lower. I like to see females at least around 35%, but you know, it can go up to 42%. That would be fine. In males, we like to see about 38%, although a lot of labs, their cutoff point is 39, but I'm totally comfortable with 38. And then their reference range oftentimes goes up to 47. As your percentage gets higher and higher, up to 48, 49, even 50%, that's going to make your blood much more susceptible to clotting, heart attack, stroke, deep vein thrombosis. And this is especially important in people that are taking testosterone as a prescription. Testosterone stimulates the production of red cells, and it's something when we give testosterone to either a male or a female, we always monitor their CBC to see if their hematocrit gets too high. If their hematocrit, again, goes above 48 49%, then we want them to donate blood. Incidentally, so this is a, a funny little blurb. So back in the day, it was customary to do bloodletting. And we look back and we say, oh, they were like barbarians. They were using leeches and they were bleeding people. But if you had hemochromatosis, you definitely want to be bloodlet. You want to get that. That's going to enable you, if you have the homozygous condition, to survive. If you have the heterozygous condition, still is going to be probably somewhat advantageous to do that bloodletting. If you're anemic and you bloodlet someone, they're not going to do so well. That's the part where now we have the technology, we can figure out who needs to be bloodlet. And there's actually studies to show that if you re routinely donate blood, especially as a male, you're going to live longer. You're not going to die of heart disease. You're not going to die of stroke. So that's a great thing. So women, they come automatically equipped with their own bloodletting device, and that is their period, their menstrual cycles. So we know that women, up to the point where they stop menstruating, have lower cardiovascular disease in males. And that's one of the big reasons why, because they have less iron in their tissue, less oxidation going on. When women hit menopause, their level of cardiovascular disease quickly catches up to males, which is really interesting. So again, look at that hematocrit, take a look and see where your numbers are at. You need to speak to your physician in order to determine what's best for you. But these are questions that you can ask your physician. So the other thing is your hemoglobin is the color of your blood. You want to be mostly in the reference range, but not too high. So better to be in the middle to the lower part. And the last thing, which is a key marker, is your mean cell volume. So MCV tells you how big your red blood cells are at. If you have iron deficiency and you are anemic, and that is significantly below the reference range, 
and your man, your mean cell volume is low. So the normal range is from 80 to 100. Low MCV means that your red blood cells are small. And small red blood cells will frequently, most often, means that you're deficient in iron. So again, if you're hypochromic, that means you don't have the color, which is less hemoglobin. The hematocrit's low, and you got a low MCV. Make sure you check that ferritin and the percent transfer and saturation, and that'll give you that necessary information. Okay, so moving on, just going to talk briefly about the comprehensive metabolic profile, which, again, is a basic test. You want to question your physician if they tell you everything is in the normal value, and this is where you could look at your own blood work and be proactive. So normally in a chemistry, they're going to check your, your glucose levels. So glucose levels, and this is near and dear to me, if you're fasting, and that could be three or four hours, is pretty much fasting. You don't have to fast for 24 hours, but normally they have you fast overnight and you come in, they draw your blood and they determine what your fasting glucose is. Ideally, you should be between 70 and 90. The lower is actually going to be better. This is an interesting history, is that back when I first started practicing, way back when, in 1983, the reference range for glucose was 140. If you were less than 140, you were considered to be, oh, you're okay. And I'm like, that is not really good at all. So they changed the reference range some years after I started practicing from 140 to 126. And they said, well, if you're above 126 fasting on two separate occasions, you got diabetes. Saying, so, okay, so that's better. But what about between 100 and 126? Well, they decided to come up with a new category. And if you're above 99 and you're below 126, then you have impaired glucose tolerance. Well, no one knew what the hell that meant. So they changed the wording a few years later and said, well, if you're between 99 and 126, you got prediabetes. And suddenly, wow, that got people's attention because everyone knows diabetes. Everyone knows any family members or relatives have got diabetes and the severe consequences that happen, especially lowering your lifespan. So we want your level of glucose below 90. And I've been saying this for a good 40 years now, and I'm still sticking by my same numbers, which is a good sign. I haven't changed my tune one bit. So less than, one, less than 90 on a fasting specimen is where you're shooting for. So now going down the list, I'm just going to go through a few items, one of which that's really important is potassium. So we mentioned in a previous podcast that the vast majority of people, especially in the United States, are deficient in potassium. So when we're looking at the blood, so potassium is actually concentrated inside your cells. And there's, we're not going to get into it, but there's a way to look inside the cell, some specialty tests that can determine that. But looking in the serum is a good way to start. The reference range for potassium is usually 3.5 
to like 4.5 or higher, 4.8 or 4.9. I think it's is the right. Well, it might might even be five. So different labs have different reference ranges. Just safe to know, you know, three and a half to 5.2 is kind of the range in there. So the vast majority of people are definitely below 4.5. If you're in the three range, you've got low potassium, even though you're in the reference range. Again, most physicians are not going to really point that out. And potassium is really important because potassium will keep your blood more alkaline. So almost every cancer therapy out there alternative or not non-conventional therapy involves trying to get your levels of potassium higher through juicing and through eating fruits and vegetables and such. So getting your potassium levels higher can be a little bit of a challenge. The average American gets 2.2 grams of potassium a day. So to give you like an example, an avocado a medium avocado has 1,360 milligrams, more than almost as much as the average American gets for the whole day. So when we study Paleolithic nutrition, and there's a great book called Paleolithic Prescription, which I highly recommend, Connors, Shostek, and Eaton, written back in 1986, and you can still pick it up for inexpensively. And I urge people to read that, but, you know, a lot of the ketogenic diets, paleolithic diets, they've stolen some of the material out of the book, but they haven't really recommended the right foods to eat. So keep that in mind. So potassium specifically comes from fruits and vegetables. And what we believe is that in paleolithic times, we consumed anywhere from 8 to 10 grams of potassium a day. Those of you that have kept track of your potassium levels from a diet diary know that that's a really high level. So we like to get people to shoot to 8 to 10 grams in hopes that they get maybe 6 or 7 grams. And that can be done, but you need to be conscious and aware of the foods. That's why all my patients, I give them a table of potassium and what level of potassium is in different foods. But most all labels will show you how much potassium is in there. So we know about hypertension, and potassium is a critical mineral with regards to regulating your blood pressure and also with regards to regulation of the contractility of your heart. So we know if the heart muscle becomes deficient in potassium, that can predispose you to develop something called atrial fibrillation, where the top part of the heart beats too fast and causes a turbulence of the blood and greatly increases the risk of stroke, heart attack, and cardiovascular events. So you want, again, your potassium level to be on the higher end of the scale. Ideally, I like to see it 4.6 or higher and within the reference range. Now, if you have problems with your kidneys, that could cause your potassium level to go too high. And that's not a good thing because that can result in problems with 
arrhythmias of the heart and problems with the heart beating in a regular fashion. But just keep that in mind. This is all very general information. So your sodium levels are balanced with your potassium. And sodium, ideally, you want your levels to be in the middle of the reference range to the lower part of the reference range. I think the reference range is about 135 to 145, but don't quote me on that one. I'm doing this off the top of my head. Again, below the midline would be better. So we know there's a book written by Richard Moore, Dr. Moore. It's called The K-Factor. K is the abbreviation for potassium on uh, chemical terms. And the book is just about getting more potassium in your diet. Supplement of potassium is very difficult because the FDA has limited how much they, that you can put in a supplement. So if you read your supplement label, one tablet or capsule can't have any more than 99 milligrams, which that's a tenth of a gram, and I'm recommending 8 to 10 grams. So it's like you'd have to swallow a lot of capsules. So there's a prescription drug called KDOR that has 400 milligrams, and then another one has 800 milligrams, and they're giant. So those are big, giant tablets. But potassium, you have to be careful if you're supplementing as a supplement because it can cause problems with the heart. You need to be supervised if you're doing that high-dose potassium. And it can cause stomach irritation and diarrhea and whatnot. You don't want that. So anyway, keep that in mind when you're looking at potassium and sodium in your blood. So moving along in your chemistry, liver enzymes, SGOT, SGPT, are normally measured. You want those enzymes to be on the middle to low reference range. And so if you're up around 3540, which is the top of the reference range, that could be an indication that there's problems going on. As I mentioned before, JAMA came out with an article showing that at this point, Half of the U.S. population's got prediabetes and outright diabetes. And those people will start to develop fatty infiltration of their liver. All right, so moving along. Again, I'm not going to cover everything on the chemistry, just some basic items, uh, one of which to look at is kidney function. So kidney function is the GFR. GFR is a calculation based on your creatinine and also based on your BUN, blood urea nitrogen. So BUN is a measurement of your kidney function, but it's also a measure of how much protein that you're intaking. So if you eat a lot of protein, you're going to have a higher blood urea nitrogen level because protein is basically nitrogen as it gets broken down. So creatinine comes from your muscle tissue, and that is something that normally goes into your bloodstream on a very steady, even basis. So it's independent of anything that you might be eating. So when you look at creatinine and your BUN and you do this calculation based on your age, you get something called glomerular filtration rate, GFR. Now, some labs will report an actual number, and some labs will be like greater than 60, and you're good. So just know that if your BUN is at 60, which would be considered to be good, you can still lose 90% of your kidney function and come up with a GFR of 60. So it's not a very sensitive marker. As we age, different things can affect your kidneys, 
medications can affect it. Certainly diabetes is probably one of the big factors, cardiovascular disease, or just environmental toxicants. So a number of things can affect your kidneys as well as your liver. So if you have what appears to be a borderline case of your GFR being a little bit on the low side. So then there's another test called cystatin C that you can run that's a little bit more a sensitive marker than the GFR. But I'm not going to get into details on that one. But anyway, just safe to say, look at those numbers. Bilirubin. Bilirubin is something normally they check. Bilirubin is a representation of how quickly you're breaking down your red blood cells. So if you're breaking down your red cells rather frequently, you're going to have an elevated bilirubin count. So if you had sickle cell anemia or some blood dyscrasia, what's going to happen is your red blood cells might be more fragile, and if they break down more frequently, they get recycled into bilirubin. That bilirubin goes to the liver, and then the liver conjugates it and makes something called direct bilirubin. But just know that bilirubin, if it's elevated, means that your red blood cells are maybe breaking down a little too quickly, and there can be some nutritional causes of that, which we're not going to get into at this point. Okay, so some other basic markers that we want to look at are hemoglobin A1c. I can't tell you how many times, didn't they run a hemoglobin A1c? Very simple test. It's been around for at least 40 years, and it measures your average glucose over the period of two and a half months. So why that's important is because it gives you an average. So we talked about fasting glucose. 70 to 90 is where it should be. Uh, hemoglobin A1c is a marker for, well, how high is your blood sugar on the average? So think of your red blood cells as a bunch of little sponges. Those little sponges basically absorb what's ever in your bloodstream. So if you have elevated levels of glucose, the red cells will absorb those, that level, that sugar in your blood. So as the red blood cell ages, it absorbs more and more sugar. So an old red blood cell, red blood cell lives about 120 days. And as you get to the end of the lifespan of that red blood cell, if you look and see how much sugar is in that red blood cell, it's going to be the highest of any of your red cells. The brand new red blood cells, the ones that just got made, they haven't had time to absorb that sugar, so they're going to have a lower level. So this ingenious test basically measures an average of all the red blood cells. And on an average, your red blood cell is about two and a half months old. So it's like, oh, okay, that's great. So a great marker. The reference range, now this is something they've tightened up over time. We know that the reference range 5.7 is where they now consider you to be high. And so 5.7 to 6.5 is pre-diabetic if it happens on more than one occasion. I like to see that number, hemoglobin A1c, 5.3 and below. So for each 0.1 mark on your hemoglobin A1c, that's three glucose points. So a five level of hemoglobin A1c is a 97 average, which is great. That's excellent. A 5.3 is going to be nine points higher, be about 106, just to give you some numbers over there. Anyway, so make sure you request hemoglobin A1c on your blood work because that's a really important biomarker. It's going to determine 
uh, again, how long you live. Now, if you want to get a little more creative, you can do fasting insulin. So fasting insulin is something I've been doing this for many years, and it's something that can give you a really valuable biomarker, can tell you where you are on the spectrum of pre-diabetes to diabetes or even before pre-diabetes. So your fasting insulin should be somewhere definitely below 7. 7 or below is great. When it starts getting up to 9 and 10, that's a little bit high. That's the beginning of insulin insensitivity. So you want to pay attention to that. But you can request this from your physician. Have them check your fasting insulin. That's a good one to do fasting overnight because normally you want to do your insulin in the morning. So because insulin is a particular compound that is something that's regulated in part by your biorhythms. So we're not going to get into that, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. We didn't mention any hormones, but hormones are something that's going to be in another lecture that I'm going to do, another podcast, but that's a whole topic in itself. And it's something that's greatly underappreciated. So thyroid is the most popular, but looking at estrogen, looking at luteinizing hormone, looking at progesterone, looking at testosterone. And looking at testosterone in both males and females, super important, just as important in females as it is for males. But again, that's going to be another podcast. DHEA, dihydroepiandrosterone, is another adrenal hormone that's really important. Cortisol, fasting cortisol, another one. Again, different lecture. A few more items that you can request from your physician. And again, these are just basic items. I consider them. One of them is vitamin B12. If you have not had your vitamin B12 levels checked, especially if your homocysteine's high, make sure you check B12. The reference range is super wide. It's like 200 to 1200, and they keep upping the B12 upper limit because they know B12 is non-toxic. So request them to do vitamin B12, folic acid, and vitamin D. Those are important basic nutrients, and you can get more fancy, and there's fancy labs. We'll check your vitamins and whatnot, but again, take that with a grain of potassium, I always like to say. All right, lastly, I'm just going to mention screening for males, PSA. PSA is prostatic antigen. Prostatic antigen is a marker for possible prostate cancer, but, and I want to caution that, there's a number of things that can elevate your PSA, Riding a bicycle for a long time, sexual activity, especially anal sex, can cause the PSA to go up in a male. If you have an enlarged prostate, that can elevate your PSA. If you have prostatitis, that can elevate your PSA. So there are a number of factors that could elevate it. So that's why you want to look at the results with caution, why you would like to do it uh, on a yearly basis. Now, in the last number of years, they've recommended, well, don't do routine PSA because you're just going to scare the patient. And most physicians, if the PSA is elevated, they send the male in to do a biopsy. And over 90% of those biopsies come out negative. So not something that you want to do. You don't want to just knee-jerk, elevated PSA, 
they send in for a biopsy. So just keep that in mind. But it's an important biomarker that you want to measure, especially in males. And lastly, I just want to mention one other test that you can do called insulin-like growth factor. Insulin-like growth factor is a particular compound in the blood that measures growth of tissue. As a teenager and a young kid, you want your insulin-like growth factor to be high, and as an adult, you want it to be low. So I like to see it definitely below 120, even below 100 is even better. If it's elevated, that means that you're going to stimulate the growth of tissues that you may not want to stimulate the growth of, and that's especially cancer. So anyway, I'm not going to get into more detail on that. But anyway, so those are the basics with regards to doing some basic blood work. So follow my podcast, and I'm going to talk a little bit more in depth about each of those individual tests and a little bit more about hormones and some other things that you can include on your blood tests. Okay. Well, thanks for listening to Health Talk from Mars. It's out of this world, and keep in touch. And you can go to my website, marsnutrition.net, and you can follow me there. Okay. Ciao.